Now for an episode in our series, Trying Something New. We're talking to women who've made a career change or picked up new skills post 40. As the retirement age rises, many of us will work into our 60s and even 70s. So are we retraining or rethinking? We want to hear about how you did it, why you did it, and was it worth it? Our guest today is Carrie Fisher, author, world traveler, former journalist, and features writer. Carrie became a published author at the age of 48. She's the author of 10 novels and one memoir, selling over a million copies worldwide. Her books have been translated into 10 languages with the USA Today bestseller, The Silent Wife, optioned for TV. Perry is fascinated by complex families and describes her books as contemporary fiction for women who've lived long enough not to expect the fairy tale. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. We are delighted to have you. And I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Good. So our first question is, how about we start filling in the listeners on how you would describe the kind of fiction that you write? Because you weren't always a fiction writer. So how did you pick this genre or did it pick you? Well, I used to write real life stories uh, for uh, women's magazines. And I was a rubbish journalist because I would endlessly say to people, oh, don't say that because when your mum sees that in print, she <laughs> is gonna, it's going to break her heart. Um, so all the good bits of my stories I used to leave out because I couldn't bear the thought of ruining people's family relationships just for, you know, the April issue of some woman's magazine that would, would get thrown in the recycling. And from that, I started doing book reviews for another magazine. And Obviously, some of the books I absolutely loved and some, you know, just like everybody, I didn't love so much. And I started to think a bit deludedly, this looks really easy. I'm sure I could write a book. Um, <laughs> so deludedly. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was totally deluded because it is so different having the idea that you could write a book or you might write a book to the actual discipline of pinning yourself to a chair and writing a book. They, they are two vastly different things. And I'm not making out I'm exceptional because loads of people do manage it, but it is a bit harder than it looks. Mm, um, so I'd agree with that. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it is a real discipline, especially when you're unpublished, because I mean, it's different for me now because it's a job and I know I'm going to get paid. But when you're unpublished, you have to believe in yourself a long time before anybody else does. Mm. And when life's busy, when you've got a family, when you've probably got another job, it is hard to carve out that time because it's at the expense of something else you'd like to be doing that is probably a lot easier. So the itch wouldn't go away. I really wanted to do it. And I kept thinking, oh, I, I'm so I actually ended up taking courses online, which really helps with motivation because you're delivering a certain amount of pages every week. You're getting feedback from those. So that in itself, you know, it encourages you forwards. Um, what kind so, of, sorry, what kind of courses were they? So I was taking courses back in a, probably about. 2006 my my children were very young so it, it was it was a long time ago now it was before sort of internet teaching was such a big thing and the courses that were available then were with the university of california um oh. online courses okay. and, and they were great i did about eight terms which were about 10 weeks with them and i learned so much i mean people do have this impression that because we can physically write anybody can write 
But actually, it's just like learning to be a, a plumber or an electrician or whatever. You need to understand how the basics work. You wouldn't, you know, go off and start fiddling around with your U-bends without learning, a, you know, the basics. And, and to be honest, writing's the same. You need to understand. I mean, there are, there'll be some genius people who can do it naturally. But, you know, let's say that <laughs> the, the rest of us, <laughs> of mere mortals, actually need to learn how plot works, how structure works, um, you know, how to bring characters and settings alive. Well, it, it's a craft, isn't it? It's You put something together, you know. There are so many elements to it. The ideas, like you say, the character, the structure, and it has to go into a format that, people can digest in something they recognise as a novel. Yeah. Unless it's, I don't know, Ulysses or something. <laughs> but even that has a structure. It has it a very complex a, structure. It's a complex structure, but it's... <laughs> I mean, it's, it is funny because I still sit down at the beginning of every book and think, I don't really know how to do this. Oh, I God. Still, I still what a horrible feeling. moment of panic where I think, Okay, I've got a deadline and, you know, it's not that far away. Not sure I know how to do this, but what I do know is you can't edit a blank page. So I just start going. I mean, I've written a yeah. synopsis. I was going to say, how much prep had you done by the time you get to this point? I do a lot more now than I used to. So when I was unpublished, you have the luxury of time of thinking, well, you know, if it takes me a year or two years to write a book, it doesn't matter because nobody's waiting for it. Whereas now, with my tighter deadlines, I can't afford to go down any blind alleys. So how it works now is I write a synopsis, not hugely detailed, but, uh, you know, enough that I know exactly where the story is going, what the main plot twists are, that sort of thing. And I have to agree that with my editor before she commissions the book effectively. So I do know what I'm doing. I don't always know how I'm going to get there. And quite often I'll get halfway through and think, hmm, I'm really not sure where I'm going with this. And then I have to go right back to the beginning. I read everything through. And sometimes that's quite joyful because I'm, I might read a bit of, you know, a few pages and think, actually, that's really quite good. Oh, I'm, it's not as bad as I thought. And then just it's that seems to unlock something reading it all through and thinking yep that was where I was going with this it's fine um but now when I get to that point I have faith because I'm more experienced so I can say to myself I always feel like this at this point there will be a solution to it um mm. you know so I, I've got more confidence let's say yeah so so genre then how, how did you pick the genre so I Initially, when I started out, I thought I would be in the rom-com area of writing. There weren't many books at the time, or at least not that I'd come across, that were for women, middle-aged women. At the time, there seemed I, I can remember talking to one agent who said, nobody over 40, darling, nobody wants to read about old people. And, wow. And so, <laughs> there were, so that sort of stuck with me because I was desperate to get published. So everybody I wrote about would be sort of 35 whereas when it's I got a tipping to, point isn't it yeah, I know. <laughs> tipping point of acceptability for a woman yeah, you know. I, know, really, I mean which actually I, I mean I suppose I started writing nearly seriously writing nearly 20 years ago now and the world's changed dramatically 
and and now I really want to write about women my age in their 50s because I feel like life is just beginning for me. I feel like I've got a small handle on being an adult now. It's <laughs> taken a while, but getting back to when I started, I thought I would be in the rom-com arena and I wanted to write books with humour because I, I think it's brilliant to laugh, isn't it? And it's great to pinpoint those tiny little... Or a bit like newspaper columnists do, you know, pinpoint those tiny little details of life that are funny, you know, that people don't really admit to, you know, our petty feelings and, and the way, you know, that, every, you know, often in books, I feel like friends or family relationships are put, portrayed as being these perfect things, but actually people are irritating, you know, even friends you love irritating sometimes and I agree with you I think this idea of perfection is ridiculous and I don't want to read that either but also I think the opposite is true right it isn't awful all the time either it's it's mixed it is it is mixed and I always write believable happy endings you know obviously it's a lot easier to write a happy ending in fiction than it is in real life <laughs> but I want to go away with when I finish books with a sense of hope. So I always sort of tie things up, not necessarily too neatly, but, you know, with the idea that there, there's hope. And, and really, I started off quite lighthearted. My first two books were quite lighthearted. And I hadn't really thought necessarily about what kind of genre I want. You know, I wasn't thinking commercially at all. But I've been drawn into writing meteor slightly darker women's fiction which does very much feel like my natural sitting point where I'm I'm fascinated both in fiction and in real life by complex family dynamics and that is that's where I've come to settle I'm interested most of all in how you can have five people from the same family in the room and everybody will have a different view on what was said and what was intended. It's that whole family thing of everybody seeing their upbringing in a different way. Everybody, I, you know, generally, I think people feel hard done by, you know. <laughs> what, whoever you are in the family, whatever your position is, I think everybody feels that they have the rawest deal. Yeah, my amazing Auntie Philippa used to always say, we are all usurped kings. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> I love it. In our introduction, we mentioned that you write contemporary fiction for women who've lived long enough to not expect a happy ending. And I think that is so true, isn't it? I mean, we we know that things are not going to be perfect, but we know, as Eve was saying, it's not all awful. Things can be settled. You can make the best of it. Where does that come from for you? Was there, a, was there a point at which in your writing when you first started out, was there a point, was there where you thought, no, I just can't write those sugary happy endings? I think for me, it was possibly when I first started getting into slightly darker women's fiction. I think I just wanted to be realistic. I wanted to read books about women with real problems who looked real. I wanted to write about, I suppose in some ways when I'm writing these books, I'm making sense of my of 
family life, you know, because mm. it's hard, man. It is hard. <laughs> and I I wanted to I suppose I'm I'm trying to understand things myself in some ways when I'm writing. You know, all those complex dynamics in families where I often feel that I'm the one trying to make it right for everybody and even though I'm not doing what I want to do I still haven't managed to make everybody else happy and I wanted to write those sort of books you know that, that sounds like being a mother mm -hmm. <laughs> I can definitely relate you know, yeah caught in the middle they're, they're, you know, they might have elderly parents, young children, a demanding job, a husband who's actually nowhere in the picture but would like to be more in the picture. You know, it, it, it's just hard. So mm -hmm. that was what I was interested in. And I wanted to be realistic without making out that, you know, the woman's lot is such a terrible drudge because I wouldn't change my life. You know, I'm glad that I've been around for my kids and that my job, you know, I, I always say I write novels in the crevices of family drama. You know, mm. nobody takes my job seriously. Um, <laughs> even now. It's not just being a writer. Yeah, no, nobody at home takes yeah. anybody's job of the the woman in the house seriously yes. it's uh, just... when your job pays for the new swimming pool they'll care about it quite a lot yeah. <laughs> well, you know fingers crossed but i mean you know i do have an awful lot of people blundering into my office and it's you know i can't seem to get through that sometimes i might just be crafting that perfect sentence and when somebody comes in and says, I know you're busy, Mum, and I know you're at work, but is there any bread in the freezer? And that sentence is gone forever. You know, I can't help feeling. I mean, my husband works from home as well, but I don't think he gets disturbed in any way as much as I do. But, you know, yeah. I wouldn't change it. I'm, you know, I'm lucky to have him. Yeah, you'd have to make different choices, right? Yeah. Like you'd have to be a different kind of writer. You'd have to be a different kind of mum. You'd have to just have a different relationship. You know, if you wanted that kind of writerly life, you would have to lock yourself in a room with a big sign that says stay out. Yeah. And it, you would have a different relationship to everybody. And maybe that's yeah. not for you. It's not for me. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's not realistic. I mean, Roald Dahl used to write in his shed, didn't he, at the end of the garden? And he had a like a bell thing that would communicate with him but other than that they weren't allowed to go into the shed and he used to cut out for meals at certain times but no one was allowed to disturb him well I, I just can't get my head around that they've actually recreated they've got his shed it's in the museum in the Roald Dahl Museum and I, I remember thinking how does this work that nobody comes in and asks you i would sometimes and occasionally and in fact in lockdown when, when all four of us were working from home i did sometimes stick a notice on my door do not come in unless your leg is hanging off you know? <laughs> um, i i did have a few I mean, of those think about it really hard yeah that <laughs> whether it's just whether it's just bleeding or whether it's actually hanging off so you you started writing around 40 i think you said so what was it about that time in your life that you suddenly thought this is the moment that i can focus on finding a creative voice instead of a journalistic voice i think i knew that i didn't want to be a journalist anymore i i mean i i do still like writing features and i do write them occasionally but i just didn't want to do the bruising real life stories. I, I'm a worrier. 
so mm. I don't ever like to write anything that's going to hurt somebody. And by default, if you write real life stories for a living, you are going to make somebody uncomfortable with that reading. And it's just not for me. I, you know, I like fictional families where I can make them do what I want. I can resolve things in a happy way if I want to. You're in control. <laughs> I mean, it, actually, it's probably the only area of my life where I can control people's behaviour. Um, <laughs> and and also, I suppose I my children were young, but I'd got through the heavy lifting of having really young babies. And I think I'd just come up for air for the mm. first time in a few years and was thinking, you know, what's the next step? What What's next for me? How did you approach that? So I knew... Oh, I'm having to rewind in my head how it did all happen. I started writing a book that I wanted to write, which was a book set in Italy. I used to be a hol holiday rep in Italy in my 20s. I really wanted to write about adjusting to a new culture and working in a working abroad, that sort of thing. But I haven't I haven't really nailed that to keep people turning the pages, there needs to be a bit of conflict. So there was a lot of sitting in restaurants, a lot of looking at poppies and looking at sunflowers <laughs> and that sort of thing. Sounds but, nice. Yeah, <laughs> I want that life. Yeah. I want that life too. So when that got rejected quite a few times by various agents, I thought, right, okay, I I need to learn how to do this properly. So then I did – I. I went on a press trip and I bumped into another journalist who was doing online courses with the University of California. So I signed up for that. And really, I didn't look back after that. I, I knew, absolutely knew that I wanted to be published. What I didn't realise was how hard that is. I, I had this sort of idea in my head that if I'd been through a process of learning how to write, then I would write the book and then I would send it out and then it would be published. And that took significantly longer than I expected. How <laughs> long? Watching too many movies. Yeah. How long did it take? I think over five. So over five years, I wrote three books and I had about 120 rejections from agents um, wow. in that time. And it, I mean, it was hilarious, actually, because my husband was at the stage where he'd be not exactly saying, when is this nonsense going to stop? But he was starting to say things like, the National Trust are looking, are advertising for shepherds, um, you know, and that, and that sort of thing, you know. So um, eventually I actually self-published and that was that was in 2012 december 2012 and that was at a time before self publishing was so well known and and so mm. mainstream really which and, it is now it's yeah. much easier to do much more yeah. you know yeah and much more normal you know much more normal I mean, yeah definitely. technology's helped though with that yeah it's made um, it really accessible i think back then when i self published there was much more stigma around it than, yeah. than there is now but actually, it was glorious. Uh, just actually getting my book out to people who weren't related to me, who weren't my friends, and getting positive feedback was was just fantastic. And actually, that self-published book eventually got picked up by Avon, who's which is an imprint mm -hmm. of HarperCollins. So the self-publishing was my stepping stone, actually, to getting published by a traditional publisher. That's amazing. So was, did they did they spot it then? 
Weirdly, I used to go to lots of uh, networking events where there would be agents. The um, Romantic Novelists Association holds two big parties every year where there are lots of agents and editors and lots of aspiring authors. And I met an editor from Avon at one of those. And we didn't, we actually didn't talk about my book at all. We were talking about one of her authors, Vary McFarlane, um, and I'd read her books and really liked them. And we were discussing that. And then afterwards, I thought in the publishing world, it's changed a bit now, but it's not very normal to directly approach editors. Agents are really the gatekeepers. But I just thought, honestly, it's worth a try. You know, what's one more stamp compared to the, you know, 55,000 that I've already wasted? Mm -hmm. So I sent her the first three chapters and she came back immediately and said, I love it. Send me the rest. Wow. That's amazing. So that was how I, I mean, it's not a very normal routine. Yeah. That is how I got my first publishing deal. So was that the not so perfect mum? Yes. So it started off, that's had, that's had various different titles. So when I self-published it, I didn't really see it as a story about motherhood. I saw it as a story about class. So it was actually called The Class Ceiling. Um, ah. And it was, it was about a cleaner's children uh, going to private school and the differences she saw. Really, it was about schoolgate snobbery which I had observed and really, really wanted to write about because I thought there was a lot of humour in that. So that's what I did. So it went from being the class ceiling when it was published to being the Schoolgate Survival Guide. And then I think after that, it must have been a couple of years on, they changed it to the Not So Perfect Mum. But I still really like my title because it because it had the strap line was money gets you through the door, but can it make you belong? And that was really what that story was about. Is it having your title changed and the sort of somebody look at your book and go, no, it's not about that. You might think it's about that, but it's about this. How does that feel? I mean, I used to feel much more precious about it when I first started out. I've come to the conclusion that if you don't stay self-published, you have to write the best book you can, and then you have to give it to the people that have a lot of experience in marketing and selling books. Mm. So my view, and and it hasn't always come true, but my view is the people who do it for a living probably know more than Kerry Fisher sitting at her her kitchen table in Surrey. So in the end, I have to trust or I have to keep control. Yeah. So I I used to feel that I wanted to fight a lot more over covers and titles and, and whatever. Now, I do my part and then I hand over that book baby and they do their part. Sometimes they do brilliantly and it comes off and sometimes it doesn't. But if we knew what the answers were, we'd all write bestsellers, but we don't. In the end, yeah. a lot of it is down to chance and luck mm. and what hits the zeitgeist of the moment or, or whatever. You know, it's 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 impossible to stay. Say, I have one book, The Silent Wife, that has sold, oh, you know, multiples of of multiples of all the other books put together. That sold about eight hundred thousand copies. Just that one book. Amazing. Uh, honestly, if I knew how to recreate that. I'd do it every time, Um, (laughs) but I don't. I cannot identify what it is in that book. I mean, there are certain things I can can say, yes, 
that that's contributed but i can't identify why that over all the others has had the most incredible success people love that book and i'm actually slightly sad to say it's about um domestic violence and i'm and privately i have had hundreds if not thousands of messages from women saying you've written about my life oh, so wow. i think partly the topic yeah which has really really resonated with women but other than that i yeah. don't know I wish i did <laughs> but how yeah so how does that help or do you even feed that into your creative process or do you just kind of ignore it and just write the stories you want to you want to write or how do you work that through i think i'm probably not commercial enough in the sense that i will get an idea that i want to write and as long as there's a fair hook and a fair degree of commerciality around it that's the story i want to write some authors have millions of stories floating around their head all the time and they can't wait to get them down i'm not that person i have to hack my ideas out of concrete and <laughs> cling on to them and you know gestate them for, for weeks on end and then i'll write so my ideas usually come from talking to women my age and listening to what matters to them i want to represent women of my age obviously there's an absolute market for 20 somethings at the beginning of their career with their impossibly handsome bosses and all the rest of it <laughs> and i loved those books when i was younger that's not what i want to read now i want to read books that make me feel that what i feel is absolutely okay and that's what I, that's what i try to do so that by necessity i'm writing books about women who've got elderly parents who can be who can be difficult who are you know who've got teenage children that they actually don't know what to do with it's hard that bit of life we know and, you know yeah, we do know and I, <laughs> I want women to be reading my books and thinking i feel heard by you <laughs> yeah well it makes you feel less lonely doesn't it because it's not it's not just you but I also I love this fact that you call your you know you were talking about handing the baby over to the publishers with all their experience and it's like there's that phrase isn't that you know it takes a village to raise a child and I sort of feel like your books are like that you know you're you're drawing the influences from the people around you you're putting the ideas into a book and then you're handing it over to another set of people who are going to turn it into something that kind of feeds back into that audience from which you've got those ideas from it's like it's this whole idea of a writer working alone and it's all about them actually you know hearing you talk i'm thinking no actually it's more than that you're in some ways a bit of a conduit i think well you that's know. the best way of putting it i mean i'm extremely lucky and it has been a bit hit, hit and miss but i have a great agent who's not quite half my age but she's at least twice as wise she's, <laughs> she's brilliant so my initial idea i might run past her before i make a fool of myself in front of my editor so i you know i'll say what do you think about this is this just a ridiculous idea and, and we'll chat around that my editor she's in her 40s and is very she's really smart so 
I might come with a half-baked idea about, I was thinking about writing something around this, and she will immediately be able to find the commercial hook in that and move me in the right direction. My my first drafts, which are quite tidy, I tend to write fairly slowly and carefully, she'll immediately be able to say, and I dread this, she'll say, mm, that thing that happens at 75% of the way through probably needs to happen at 50%. And I, I, honestly, it's heart sinking because you yeah, know. That's that, a lot of work. That's four weeks work. But she is so clever and just so experienced. And I absolutely trust her judgment. So I'm incredibly lucky to have that team. But beyond those, my agent and my editor, there'll be you know, a whole team. I've got a brilliant copy editor who, I mean, honestly, I think I'm really hot on grammar and spelling, but my life, she is so smart. So it is a whole team thing. And, and then obviously there's the whole production team, the proofreaders. There, there's a lot that goes into getting a book out there. But I also wouldn't be able to produce work of such a high standard without them. What I thought was really reassuring, one of the many things that you said that's really reassuring is that you can have a creative life in a different way. So like you said, you know, there's there's this expectation or there's this sort of, you know, trope that the, the creative person, you know, has ideas flowing out of their head constantly and they just don't have enough time to write it all down. I think it's very reassuring to hear that actually there's other ways to find creativity and there's other ways to find stories that, you know, you have to work at it in a different way and find your own way to do it. Because I'm not a creative person like that. And I've, I don't have ideas pouring out of my head every day. I have one idea a year. That's about it, really. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're good ideas. <laughs> one good idea is better than yeah. 25 not so good ideas. <laughs> yeah, so it's really interesting. Like, I'm, I'm curious about what it feels like to be a creator and have a creative life having had a and and I think journalism actually is a creative endeavor um I do think there's there's a lot of creativity in that but it's not it's it's down the factual route but I sort of wonder if you've always been a creative person and now since becoming an author and you know really the determination to carry on like 120 rejections like I would have just laid down and said never mind to to persevere and embrace this creative life that you're you're living what does that feel like i feel extremely fortunate because actually people are incredibly impressed by you know if i say to anybody oh i'm an author once they realize you're a published author people seem to think that you're really clever but actually i am lucky to have a job that, that i love and i do you know i don't love it all the time sometimes I, it feels very frustrating I do really enjoy what I do, and that is a gift, you know, and, and a privilege. But at the end of the day, it is still a job. There is this sort of idea, and I don't know anybody, you know, I've got lots of author friends, and I don't know anybody who just sits down and it all flows and does uh, and all comes together seamlessly. It is a hard slog, and it's no different, really, to an, any other job. I still sometimes get to Monday morning and think, that was a quick weekend. Anyway, back to Grindstone, you know. And so it it's not, there is a kind of myth around creative uh, work that 
it must be wonderful to just sit down on a Monday morning and all those ideas flowing out of your fingertips. Honestly, I might have written a hundred words by lunchtime and thinking, I don't know where I'm going with this, honestly, I, you know. But I think what does slightly make the difference between being successful and not being successful is one, the perseverance, because I'm sure there are many, many more writers, way more gifted than I am, that just got too disheartened and gave up. And it was tempting to give up, but actually giving up just felt slightly worse and it was often a close run thing than carrying on. I just wanted to do it. And I couldn't, you know, even when I said, right, I'm just going to stop thinking about this. I'm not going to do it anymore. I just couldn't give it up. I couldn't let it go. So you do need to persevere. But yeah, I, I mean, it is a job and I and and I do it for money. You know, the, the, a bit of this idea that we want to share our gift with the world and it doesn't really matter whether we get paid or not. But actually, I don't feel like that about it. I do it because this is how I earn my living. There is a value to everything that we do. I think it's an insult to creative people, actually, to have those thoughts about the fact that they shouldn't get paid. And people are paid so poorly in the arts. People are working in theatre, you know, writers. It's I, when you think of what what they bring I'm not saying that their job is better than anybody else's job, but it has equal value, I think. And I find it quite shocking, actually, how little people are appreciated. And exactly what you say, that, you know, it's some kind of expectation that you would do it anyway. Just um, do it for the love. Just I mean, do it for the love, because we've all got mortgages to pay. And, you know, you do see this rent. Spot with so I'm um, I'm now with a digital first publisher, which is basically main. My, there are paperbacks, but my main sales are, are ebook, and they sell for one ninety nine, or if there's a special offer, ninety nine p. So, and it's incredible how people will complain. Oh, I've just spent one ninety nine on your book, and now I see that it's it, it's on offer for ninety nine p. A book that is sold at 99p equates to 8.5p for me. So it is astonishing that a book that will provide, let's say, five, six hours of entertainment. I, bu I don't very often buy magazines anymore, but I bought one the other day. They're 5 99 Yeah. You know, and I, th I think that th th there's a real disconnect with what the book buying public think they should be able to buy books for and mm -hmm. I, you know there's a there's a big part of me that thinks great you know books are accessible to everybody and that's fantastic and and that's the way it should be but people do forget that authors need to earn a living they, they do mm. and my yeah. answer to that is join a library yes our <laughs> lovely libraries <laughs> our lovely libraries people are always fascinated about how uh, writers work but I'm really interested in the job aspect you treat it like a job so what is your week like I mean let's put aside all of those uh, those theories about that you're wandering I mean obviously you're wandering around in some kind of floor length smock um thinking creative thoughts and occasionally you let it all flow out of you or realistically you know bum on seat at desk what is your working week like so realistically, I'm out the door at 8.30 and I walk till 10.30.
So that's the start of my day. I get home, I have breakfast, I faff about on social media. I, I, to be honest, I've got a, a nice following on my author Facebook page and I love interacting with my readers. So I'll go and answer their messages, have a bit of a chat, post stuff on Instagram. That doesn't sound like faffing. That's it, work and also it, part of your process. It is part of the process. My husband, who's very goal-driven, finds me utterly frustrating that it might be midday and I'm still in the kitchen. But of course, I'll have put washing on, thought about what dinner is, la-da-da, got stuff out the freezer, you know, mm. all that sort of thing. And then I will get up to my desk probably about midday and I usually finish work about seven. I'll come down to cook dinner about seven. That's a good stretch. Um, yeah, I won't necessarily be sitting at my desk all that time. I might go down, hang the washing out, clean my bathroom, whatever, whilst I'm thinking yeah. next bit. But I try and set myself a goal of 2,000 words a day, five days a week. Which is a lot. I oh, know, having written that, stuff, that that's a lot. lot. That is a lot. That, yeah. that is a lot. I don't always achieve that, but I try and aim when, you know, allowing for family drama and parents and all the rest of it i try and get ten thousand words down a week i don't usually achieve that i would say a dirty first draft i can use which is eighty thousand words i can usually get down in about 12 weeks That's, um, i mean that work. is it's phenomenal it's a lot of words and it is hard work and i don't think people realize how hard that is to produce it's t I don't know whether I don't think it's because I'm getting older. I think this stage of life does carry a lot with it. And I am tired at the end of the day. My brain is tired. So when sometimes when my I've got young adult children living at home still, when they come in and they want to talk about their jobs and um, they want my input, sometimes I think, Oof, can we talk about this tomorrow? Because my brain is really tired. <laughs> I just, there's nothing left. I just want to sit gormlessly in front of the Durrells or something and <laughs> just relax. Thank God for the Durrells. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I've, I've actually just been to Corfu on holiday. What an amazing place. I absolutely loved it. You would love it, Caroline. Well, after hours. watching the Durrells, I've become obsessed with Corfu and I really what want to go there. Oh, yeah. the, the and they say before. Greece in the spring is the best time to go. In fact, they say that about a lot of European countries. And of course, the novel Enchanted April always makes me want to go to uh, Italy in the spring. Oh, one of these things I may do one day. <laughs> well, actually, I I did a, I did my degree in French and Italian, and I lived in Italy for five years. So we always promised that when the kids left home, or or they haven't left home, but they can be left at home without us in charge. We actually went to Rome for a month in last March, and that was incredible. That was just a brilliant, brilliant time, which then gave me all the creative ideas to write my two novels that are out this summer. Oh, um, fantastic. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So it was a busman's <laughs> holiday, really. Well, it was. I hadn't, I'd actually intended to take a sabbatical last year because I, I hadn't seen much of my parents like everybody in, uh, during the pandemic. And they're not getting any younger, so I thought, right, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take a sabbatical for a year and make sure I can see them and spend a bit of time with my, you know, husband. 
But actually, as soon as I got out to Rome, I was like, oh, I've got a good idea. <laughs> so, um, I ended up writing two books last year instead of having a sabbatical. But anyway, that's the way life goes. Incredible. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about like you are quite an adventurous person. You've traveled around the world. I loved traveling when I was younger. And I, you know, I lived in Corsica for a year and I lived in Spain for a couple of years and Italy for five. And I, nothing even now compares to that glorious feeling of arriving somewhere that I've never been before and thinking about how it's all out there to discover. And I just love it. But I want to do it in slightly more comfort now. <laughs> Nothing what, wrong with what that. What I've learned to my cost is if I don't do it in slightly more comfort, I will increase the chances of my osteopath retiring with a Rolls Royce. Yes. <laughs> yes, doesn't that happen to all of us? Yeah. But that's a really good point, like talking about, you know, the the people that you're you're representing, the women you're representing in your novels. These are the concerns, right? So it's really interesting that, you know, you're you're shining a light on and telling the stories of these women who are experiencing what you're experiencing. So I assume you'll have a character at some point in the future who backpacks, but in like five star hotels. <laughs> well, actually, the so I've got the two books in the Rome series that are out in July, and I'm writing a third book at the moment in that series. And it's really about a woman. I'm not giving too much away when I say that she's recreating her interrailing trip from when she went with her best friend years ago. And there is a bit of that, you know. And, and also, I I don't know whether you see this, but there, there seem to be certain people in their 50s, some who are just sort of almost, you, you can imagine exactly what they're going to be like when they're 80 because they're almost already there. And then there's this other group of really dynamic women who seem to absolutely feel young and vibrant and that they've done the heavy lifting of child rearing. And now that this is their moment. This is one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast, because we really feel like that. We feel like there is one camp who've got an eye on retirement. You see them planning out the rest of their life. But I'm thinking... Well, actually, in your 40s, that's 40, could be 40 years. In your 50s, that could be 30 years. And there's another group who are trying all the things that they didn't get to do earlier. They've, like you say, they've done the heavy lifting of looking after children. And they've now feeling, you know, at a point in their lives where they kind of know themselves better, know what they want and want to try new things and have got that adventure. And if you've always had that sense of adventure and liking to do new things, actually that doesn't go away as you get older. In fact, I've got a longer list because I've had to put quite a lot of them aside for several years. Well, I'm trying to live as though I've only got two years left to live and which is a, obviously a, a morbid thought, but I think all well, of, it could happen to any of us. All of us have lost people, yeah, young people before their time, yeah, too soon. And if I get another thirty years, well, what a great bonus! Yeah. So I'm trying not to put things off. Mm. So last year we did the month in Rome and a month in Lisbon. This year we're doing a rail trip to Italy in the in the autumn. I, I'm I'm always drawn to Italy. I love Italy, and Obviously, that sounds really privileged, which it, which it is. You know, there's no doubt about that. That's not. Yeah, but you've worked for that privilege. Let's not um, forget you're 
that bum has been on that seat for seven hours a day you know. on the seat and I don't want to put it off I'm prepared mm. to accept a more impecunious later life where I, I just want to get on and live now and I want to live with great joy in my heart and and I think that's the fantastic thing about being this age is I wouldn't say that I don't care at all what people think about me but I'm far more accepting of the fact that I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea. So I don't need to try to try that. I, you know, I know who my friends are, but I'm also still very open to making new ones. I've made a couple of fantastic friends in the last couple of years and they, they, they're joy bringers, you know? And so I, I'm trying to surround myself with people that bring energy to things and, you know, I, I feel really lucky. I mean, I, I think partly I've had a, a reason to do this. My my son had cancer six years ago. He's fine. I think that was a really good line in the sand in life about what matters and what doesn't and mm. what I'm going to waste my energy on and what I'm not going to waste my energy on. So actually, although obviously I still wish it hadn't happened to us, it definitely has been useful in working out what matters in life good things come from everything mm, they do and true. i think we've all by this age we've all seen quite a lot of life haven't we and yes. you do you do get to look you know start looking a bit more broadly at things and you know just going back to what we were saying at the beginning about your books like things aren't perfect but they're still good there's so much good and it's about identifying those things so in terms of the writing, do yeah. you get lots of people who, I mean, they, you know, there's that phrase, there's an awful in everybody. And I don't actually think that's true. <laughs> there might be a story in everybody. I mean, some are very short novels. Yeah. I mean, that's okay. I mean, how long is a novel anyway? But do you get lots of people asking you for advice? And actually, you know, if people do have a burning desire to be an, a writer, if they want to write novels, and they're in their 40s, 50s or 60s. Do you have any advice how to kickstart that? Because let's face it, you know, we're, although we're hoping to go on into our 80s and 90s, we might not be. And what would be the best advice that you could give to somebody who's thinking about that? So really, you just need to make a start. So, so I, I have people that say to me, I, I'm going to write a novel when I have time. Or when I get a moment, when I've done all the other millions of things that I need to do, I'm going to write a novel. That day will never come unless you make time for it. So yeah. you have to prioritise. If if you really want to do it, you could, you know, I always say go with a word count. Instead of saying I'm going to write for an hour a day because that might that might feel too overwhelming, write 200 words a day, write 500 words a day, you know, but commit to it. So I have to protect my writing time. I mean, obviously, it's my job. So it's slightly different. Yeah. But even before I was published, I would commit to writing either 500 words a day or whatever. And I would make that happen. But it's obviously it's at the expense of something else. So to find the time to do it, you have to give up your half an hour of TV or you know your hour on social media or chatting with people whatever you do you know mm. there's always a compromise but if you really want it you'll make it happen but I think one of the easiest ways 
to discipline yourself to do it is to do an online writing course because then you you automatically get deadlines i think human beings respond well to deadlines and yeah so that would be my best advice take an online writing course there's a very good writing online writing workshop called um jericho writers they have a writing festival it was it used to be in york they would be my my recommendation um and there are loads of online writing courses there so yeah that's my top tip find something that motivates you that gives you a routine that gets you in the routine of writing every day or if not every day three times a week whatever whatever you can manage but it is a slog to write a first book because mm. you're doing i mean it's easier for me now because i've got more experience so the writing is easier but you know also write for the joy of it you know yeah do you still write for the joy of it that's a mixture actually i have found and this is a disappointing fact about life that the more successful i've become the slightly less joyful it is because it is a job and there's more weight on me whereas I think my most joyful writing times actually came before I was published but then there was a tipping point because I was frustrated that I wasn't published but when I first set out the idea that I could actually write a book and complete a book was very joyful Um, Mm. and also you're not now I have you know a bit of agent on one shoulder, an editor on the other, you know, as I'm thinking about what they will be thinking about this. Whereas mm. before I was just happily writing away, slurping up spaghetti in Tuscan <laughs> restaurant, not worrying about the conflict, the plot twist, the character arc, any of that. I was just <laughs> joyful. Yeah. Do you think people should think commercially when they write? Like they should think about what other people would want to read or is that just going to derail people you know should you just write what you want to write or it's such a good question the trouble is if you look at what is selling well now given that what's selling well now was probably written a year or two ago you might have missed the boat anyway I Mm. think there are certain things that can make your novel much more commercial which is basically having a really good hook. I always struggle with this. So my editor always has to step in and help me out with this. I I was pitching an idea to her last week and she was like, I really like that, but it's quite quiet because my next question is, and then what? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Because you're writing real life, aren't you? That's the thing. And then she's saying, no, you've got to make it fiction. <laughs> um, it's sort of like, you know, what's the conflict? I mean, the, the biggest thing is there is no novel without conflict, whether that's an internal, you know, somebody who's a people pleaser who wants to break out of that, whether it's environmental, living in a war zone or a terrorist attack or, or, or whatever. You know, if there's no conflict, then there's just people talking to each other really and and that you know that's the crux and everything has to grow from there well that's the essence of drama isn't it of storytelling is you need a conflict you need a resolution that's what we respond to somebody that you can root for somebody that you want the best for them even though they make stupid decisions yeah 
Well, that's a good point. I was going to ask you, do you have a relationship with your characters? So this sounds weird and slightly pretentious, but my characters are as real to me as the people I live with. I, it's not weird or pretentious. I no, not at all. Okay. No. So yeah. When I'm thinking about them, although I'm translating them into words on a page, in my head, they are cinematic in their realness. I, I can, I can see them. I'm oddly for a writer. I'm not very interested in what people look like, either, either in fiction or in real life. I don't really notice what people look like. I'm very aware of how people interact and how they make people feel. So that's the thing that I will always be thinking about in my social interactions. So all that sort of, all those tiny little social interactions will really fascinate me. And that will be the thing that I will be seeing when I'm writing. Because when I teach writing workshops, one of the things I get people to think about when they're trying to make their characters come alive is think about how those characters judge each other. Because although we don't want to actually admit this, we and whether we're conscious of it or not, we're judging people all the time. So when you meet somebody, you're conscious of their appearance, how they speak, could be something as simple as what's in their supermarket trolley, which wine they drink, how clean their house is, you know, the decor in their house. It could be anything. And all those hundreds of little tiny judgments that we have need to feed into character and the interactions between the characters to bring them alive. Interesting. So do they have their own life inside your head and they, you discover that they've been carrying on and they've got their own story that you just have to sort of catch up and write down? Yes. So in my Rome series, actually, it's essentially two, two women in their 70s who live in a, a, an apartment block in Rome. And for whatever reason, so I won't spoil for you, the one of the women who owns the apartment block doesn't want her daughter to come out and live in, in one of the apartments next door. And so they, you know, they have this real, one of them's a bit of a Maggie Smith sort of character and quite rude. And the, the other one's just, you know, I suppose, slightly how I see myself in later life, a bit hippie-ish, <laughs> a bit blue, blue hair, a bit harem pants and a Vespa sort of, you know, this is the me I would be if I weren't living in Surrey, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that, those people are very real in my head. You know, I can see exactly the building they live in, what their kitchens look like, how they interact with each other, how dismissive they are, how they understand what the other's thinking without actually having to articulate that. All of that is very alive in my head. I love these characters. Um, and actually, they're the two that I really feel. You know, some some characters, I, I guess I'd I, I understand them, but because they're very, very different, 
and because they frustrate me. I don't feel them in the same way. But these two women, I absolutely adore. There are some of my characters I'm more drawn to than others, especially strong, feisty, slightly sweary women. <laughs> <laughs> they sound like fun. <laughs> I was like, can we be friends with them too? Yeah, I think we should be in their gang, definitely. Do you do you know when you're done with a character? Like, do you know, I mean, are any of your books, I mean, you mentioned about the Rome series. It's yeah. just the same set of characters feature yes. in, yeah. Um, that, well, they have, there are two main characters and then new characters come in. Yeah. It's the first time I've written a series, actually. Um, so that's been a learning curve in itself. But so embarrassingly, I know this sounds really awful, but I get people come up to me and say, oh, I've just read, and it might be, say, so I've written, uh, the. this is my, my second book in the Rome series is my 12th book. So they might start talking about book number six. And they'll say, you know, when she does this and they'll actually mention a character's name. And I think I've no idea who that is. Um, <laughs> not, you know, I had one lovely woman who was who was very complimentary about the book. And she was like, did Patrick think? And I'm thinking, who's Patrick? I have no idea. And I said, to her, I said, I'm sorry. I, I actually don't know who Patrick is. Just remind me. Tell me who, who what role he plays. <laughs> because I forget all the names. The names just go out of my head. Yeah. Know? Um, you probably then, remember the scenarios. I remember but... the scenario, but I can't remember the names because they, you know, they're they're just not important to me. I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about how we all make judgments. And so even the characters in your book make judgments. And you know, like you were at the workshop explaining. So it is interesting to think about how in the real world, you know, you're putting a creative piece out there and everyone has their own idea as to whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, and they judge. But do people tell you and how do you respond to people telling you what they thought about your work? It is interesting because naively, before I was published, I imagined that I would put my book up on my Facebook page and all my friends would immediately be like, oh, she's wanted to achieve that for so long. We'll rush out and buy her book. That absolutely does not happen. So the first thing I say into work in my workshops is, there will be a tiny handful of your friends that are super supportive and there'll be a huge indifference everywhere else in your life so and, and, and it is really surprising because you actually no, I can relate to that definitely you, do, you know <laughs> anything put you in your place more firmly than realizing that things that matter so hugely to you are of absolutely no import to anybody else <laughs> so but I've learned not to take that personally you yeah. know and I actually prefer it now if people I know are not reading my books because people do have opinions and I don't think people realize I mean less so now because obviously after thousands and thousands of Amazon reviews of which the one that I love the most was a one star review that said a total waste of money I wish I'd bought a Twix um, <laughs> and that, that is my absolute favorite I love that um, I mean the honesty is breathtaking uh, I, I know hilarious and I've had I won't say I've had hundreds like that but I've had loads of one star reviews and actually, I love them because if they're well written, and especially if they're funny, they are brilliant to bring out at 
my writer's talks. Um, so I have developed a rhino hide now. Occasionally, somebody will say something that is so personal and so unkind that it will still pierce the, the rhino hide. But generally, I just think, I, you know, I read a lot and I often read bestsellers. And, you know, I think all of it, you know, reading is so individual. You cannot please all the people all the time. And I've learned I've learned to accept that. And the other thing that is an in, interesting, and this isn't family and friends, but on Twitter and also on uh, on Instagram, not necessarily book bloggers, just just people who write reviews, will tag me in to really horrible reviews. And I'm like, honestly, I don't expect you to love my work. I'm very very happy for you to have an opinion. That's fine. You know, we all have opinions. I read loads of books that I I think you know. I can't understand the the big buzz around them. But it's almost like somebody coming into your office and just standing shouting in front of your desk at what a totally rubbish job you've done. It is interesting for people who are putting creative output out there that everyone thinks that they can say those things it is it's quite remarkable I think. It's remarkable and and it is one of the surprising things that I, I you know one of one of the things I hadn't anticipated on the, the flip side to that is I have got some absolutely gorgeous readers who are so supportive mm-hmm. and send me lovely lovely messages and I would say the lovely messages far far outweigh the horrid things that people feel that they can't live another day without me knowing why do they feel it's necessary honestly <laughs> I don't everybody's a critic I know I, the other thing that has been interesting that has made me a bit more nervous when I'm writing is that everybody brings their experience to how they receive a book and that is that is interesting because a lot of the topics I write about adoption domestic violence I don't have direct experience about so I read a lot of non-fiction real life stories to understand what that feels like so I stand half a chance of getting it right when I'm writing about them these topics are tremendously and, and rightly so they're tremendously sensitive people will often get very angry about how I have dealt with a subject and that's a horrid feeling because mm-hmm. I don't have direct experience. And occasionally people will write to me and say, you have really upset me with the way you've tackled X, Y, Z. Also, exactly the same people in exactly the same set of circumstances will also write to me and say, you did a brilliant job. But mm-hmm. for some reason, those stories don't, um, you tend to remember the the ones, you know, because I, I hate this. I mean, primarily I write to entertain, even if I am writing about serious subjects. Yeah. And I hate the idea that anything that I've written, which is really for entertainment value, even though mm. I am tackling things that are important in life, hurt anybody or compounded any hurt they've experienced. But you you cannot you cannot legislate for every eventuality. You know, it, it, that's hard. I find that really hard. Yeah, but that would be such a straitjacket. You could never write anything. No. 
you know, yeah. it would be impossible. Yeah. yeah. And you can be entertaining and write about serious issues. I mean, we see this in across fiction. We see this on in TV drama. You know, you can re write really powerful things about serious subjects, which is still something which people find compelling and want to watch. I mean, look at Happy Valley. I was, uh, I was I just was thinking of Happy Valley. Valley. Yeah transfixed by that i thought the storytelling yeah. in that incredible amazing. and that mm. really sort of tapped into my i mean those di those family dynamics were definitely in the complex yeah. family dynamic category. absolutely there's um, some very difficult subjects yeah. but we all loved that family didn't we yeah. we were willing that family to survive all yeah. of this and and they real yeah they did feel real definitely yeah. no, it was really yeah. 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 So how do you how do you deal with that sort of crisis? Is it is it just part of your writer's life now? I would be lying if I didn't say that it sits with me for a few days when I get messages like that. I don't yeah. like it at all. It makes me feel horrible. I always mm. write back and I always say, you know, I make the point that I never set out to hurt anybody with anything I write. Yeah. That we all bring our own life experience to reading fiction and what's true for me is different for everybody else and you know I just make the point that I'm really sorry that anything I've written has compounded any of your hurt in any way yeah. and I think that's why they're writing isn't it because they're hurting essentially yeah, yeah. and there's that's not something that you can resolve well but, I, yeah. I don't write anything of any interest ever again to be honest if yeah. i'm worried about what um what any everybody anybody actually thinks i i learned this very early on that i can't i mean can you imagine uh, a couple of my early books have got some they're not graphic sex scenes but they are sex scenes i mean can you imagine the horror of thinking my great aunt is reading this <laughs> you would you would just never write again would you <laughs> yeah. I literally have to not think about what other people think yeah yeah because otherwise you're you know you're you're absolutely you know as eve said it's just a straight jacket i have to yeah. i have to just think i'm just going to write and i am not going to think about this so um, does your family not know what you do for a living oh they know what i do for a living <laughs> I, I think there's only my stepmom actually who who actually reads my books um, <laughs> everybody else my my mum loves them loves having the whole collection of them but she's so terrified that she might read something about an imperfect mother that then she's going to have to assume is her that she she doesn't read them you know i think that's a good decision <laughs> doesn't read them either so he doesn't have to be jealous of some you know imaginary gorgeous man that i've made up you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> so what's next what's next for you what's next well so i've got i've got the rome books out in july then i'm doing my rail trip to italy in in the autumn so i will be gathering lots of lovely little research <laughs> details which will be great and yeah just cracking on with the next books so i've got a, i've got an idea for a book set in corfu actually 
which I if you need any help with that research if you need a researcher yeah <laughs> just just to let you know I, I I'm thinking uh, you know a complex novel about two old friends who set up a podcast and then go on a research trip to Corfu with a writer they met I, I don't know about I, you guys but and I'm one thinking... of them is very willing to do all the cooking <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of them it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I'm, I like I like cooking. I, I like cooking. Oh, excellent! Um, I'm definitely going with you too. <laughs> excellent. Well, that seems like a great place to end it. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and telling us all about it. Thank you very much for having me. I've loved every minute of this conversation. It's been fascinating, oh, and uh, yeah, no, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, let us know about it. We also want to hear what you've been up to since turning 40. Get in touch on our website, rightsideof40pod.com. Follow us on Twitter at RightSide40, Instagram at RightSideOf40Pod, and Facebook at the Right Side of 40 Podcast. All content is arranged by Eve and Caroline. And a big thank you to Terry and V. Neal for writing, performing, and mixing the original music.